Um, Tonight we will gather for corporate prayer, gathering monthly as we always do at 6 o'clock, but we are not going to do it here. We're going to do it at the new campus of the Summit Church in North Raleigh. Um, The Summit, as you know, is a wonderful, large, thousands upon thousands member congregation. They're moving from Briar Creek over here onto Capitol Boulevard to be our neighbors, and we want to welcome them and bless them. Um, Some people, occasionally I'll hear someone talk about churches and they'll use competitive language. That is silly. Same, 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 people. Same, same team. We're, We're together. There are brothers and sisters. And they are a blessing to us already. We use their resources. They're mentoring some of our leaders. You have friends who go to the summit who are encouraged in their faith. So Little North Wake is going to go bless the summit tonight by praying for them. That we can do for them. They don't need our stuff. They've got their own stuff in their new campus. But we can pray for them. So come. Um, And there won't be childcare here. Our student ministry, middle and high school, will meet here. But if you have kiddos, bring them. Um, Bring them down. We're going to pray in the parking lot. Um, Together, we'll sing over the summit. And then we'll break up and do some prayer walking. This is a powerful way to teach your children how to think about other churches. That we are for them. We want to bless them. That they are our brothers and sisters. And there's only one church in, in Raleigh. And that's Christ Church. And uh, so, so come. It's going to be awesome tonight. I hope you'll come. It'll be better than whatever ball game you're going to miss. So 6 o'clock. You can meet here in Carpool Down. Um, Or you can just meet us down there about 6.15, and we'll be there for about an hour, and we'll head back. Um, And you can look up, just go to the Summit Church's website for their um, Capitol Hills campus. Um, Today's their first day. This weekend's their first day in that facility. So uh, we'll do that this evening. Also, I need to update you on our children's ministry director, Stephanie Jackson. Um, Stephanie's cancer has returned Um, with a vengeance. Um, This is a life-threatening situation, and we as her church family need to be intensely faithful in praying for her. Um, The news is not good, um, but uh, there are some beautiful treatments um, that are now newly available for her and some trials that she's going to get to do. But our great hope is in our God, and, in, and he releases his mercy through the prayers of his people. So, um, Stephanie has a Caring Bridge site. If you just go to Caring Bridge and type her name in, it will pull up this page. That will have medical and prayer updates for you. I, w- I would say it probably best not to corner Stephanie when you see her around here and quiz her about her condition. There's going to be hundreds of us doing that if we all do that. But rather, bless her. Pray for her. Let her know you love her. You care about her. Give her a hug. Tell her you're praying for her. And then do that. Be faithful to that. But this Caring Bridge site will give you updates on her condition and ways to pray for her. Um, but friends, this is, uh, this is serious. And we need to pray. So let's do that now. So we come to the one who sits on the throne. Who has authority and power to make all things new, to give life, even life eternal. God, we come to you on behalf of our sister whom we love. We ask you to pour out mercy upon her, 
to restore her health, God, to heal, that you might, that you might honor your servant and exalt your name as great in her life by bringing health and healing to her. God, give her peace as she waits for that healing. Use these doctors and these new treatments. But God, we trust that you pour out your mercy when your people pray. And so we pray. And we ask for that. Lord, this morning too, we ask that you might pour out mercy on us through your word. This has been a hard week for a lot of us. It's been a super busy week for others. And Lord, we get, our calibration gets off and our center gets lost. So Lord, restore Christ to the center today. That we might walk uh, after his ways and in his company all week long. Help us, Lord, we pray by your spirit and your word. Amen. We are studying the book of Revelation together. Last week we looked at chapter 4 where we saw that John had had a vision and he says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on, on the throne. So John in this vision saw a throne surrounded by a rainbow like an emerald, by 24 thrones in which elders sat, by four living creatures, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, and one like an eagle. And these living creatures, you remember, they cried out day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we are looking in on the scene of scenes, the wonder of wonders. Friends, we are, we are peering into the very throne room of God and this has been going on, this worship has been going on there since the foundation of the world. It's going to continue ceaselessly for all eternity, and it is happening now. And we are invited into this throne worship experience this morning. We are invited to gather around the throne of God, join the throng, and give him praise. That's why we're here. That's why we gather to worship the one who sits on the throne. Now, you read chapter 4 and you wonder, can it get any more wondrous than this? And the answer is yes. Look at chapter 5 and it's even more amazing. Chapter 5 starts this way. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John now, as part of his vision, 
he sees God the Father seated on the throne, holding forth a scroll in his right hand. And this mighty angel makes a desperate plea. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the answer grieves John. He weeps loudly because there's no one, not one, not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth, who can open that scroll. Not the four majestic living creatures, not the 24 elders seated on their thrones, not this mighty angel who cries out this query, not one of the myriads of angelic beings who hover around the throne, not Moses, the lawgiver, not David, the king after God's own heart, not the great apostle Paul, not any dark force from the underworld. No one can open this scroll. None are deemed worthy, not even to take a peek inside. And so you have to say, what is with the scroll? What is on the scroll that John is so undone because the scroll cannot be undone? And if you look back to some of the Old Testament imagery related to these kind of things, in the book of Daniel, there were great prophecies of the future reign of the Messiah. They were bound up in a book, and God said to Daniel, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book, until the end of time. And now, in John's vision, that time has come some 500 years later for Daniel's book to be opened. And Professor G.K. Beale writes about the contents of that scroll. He says, the book is thus best understood, or the scroll is best understood, as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but is yet to be completed. So the scroll holds the plan of God for the consummation of history. And in John's vision, the plan is endangered. Okay? It's stalled. It's jeopardized because there's no one worthy to open it and bring it to pass. John is tore up about it. His destiny, the destiny of the people he loves, the destiny of the universe hangs in the balance regarding this scroll. Now, as Professor Beale indicates, the scroll contains the judgments of God. And as we'll see in the next uh, bit of Revelation, judgments of the severest kind. And you have to wonder, why would you weep over the judgments of God not being opened? It sounds like a good thing. The judgments of God are not going to be opened. But if you think about it, um, if there's no judgment by a just and loving God, then there's no sure ultimate justice. Um, unsolved crimes, they go unsolved forever. There's no justice. Unconvicted rapists go free. Those who propagate hate crimes are never fully addressed. The jihadists who beheaded our brothers in Libya in 2015, they go free. Child abusers, perpetrators of genocide, they continue to live their lives unhindered. If there is no judgment, 
by a just and loving God, then there is no sure, no ultimate justice, and we are left alone with our own sorrowful, woeful, hateful attempts at justice. Theologian Miroslav Volf records the story uh, of a woman who lives in Eastern Europe. She says, I'm a Muslim, and I'm 35 years old, and she goes on to describe her work as a teacher how the very people she taught and cared for became her enemies. She says, my student Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth. And as the bearded hooligan stood around laughing, he told me, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. And so she says, to my second son, I gave the name Jihad so he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. The first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you forget. The Serbs taught me how to hate. Oh, how we need the loving justice of God for our lives and for our broken world. But the plan of God contained in this scroll cannot happen unless someone opens the scroll. The judgments of God will not come to pass, nor will the mercy that scroll contains. You remember the rainbow around the throne that represents the mercy of God? Hear the beautiful hope from Revelation 7 as that scroll is unfurled. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But again, none of this comes to pass unless the scroll is opened, and the plan of God is unfolded in history, and that's why John weeps and weeps and weeps. None is worthy. Not creatures or angels or elders or prophets or priests or kings, no one. But... At last, one of the elders speaks hope to John and to us. In verse 5, he says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, weep no more, John. There's someone who's been found worthy Only one has been found worthy. In all of creation, there's only one, and he is called the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Okay, this is Messiah language from the Old Testament. The elder is pointing John to Jesus, the Christ. And then this imagery changes in heaven, and the lion becomes a lamb. Look in verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the lion now becomes a lamb who was slain. Pastor Sam Storm says the lion in whom we find unimpeachable authority 
is also the lamb who embodies humility and meekness in the highest degree. The lion who wields power and strength that none can resist is also the lamb who walked this earth in weakness and suffering, resisting none. The lion who rules the world and governs its every move is also the lamb who was meekly led to slaughter by his enemies. And this lion, who's now turned lamb, takes the scroll and prepares to open the seals and bring to fulfillment the wise and loving plan of God for the consummation of history in our world. Now this lamb is surrounded by sevens, right? He's got seven horns, seven eyes. They're the seven spirits. And again, seven is a symbolic number that often represents completion or fulfillment or perfection. So the seven horns, the horns represent power. It's a symbol of power often. And so this is the fullness of power. We might say this is omnipotence that the lamb has. The seven eyes, they may indicate omniscience, that he knows all. They are the seven spirits. That is the fullness of the Holy Spirit that John tells us goes out on the earth and sees all that transpires there. But a primary significance about the lamb is that he is a lamb who looks as though it has been slain. Another way to put it is that it looks as though it has been slaughtered. The prophet Isaiah predicted this when he wrote about the Messiah hundreds of years before. He says he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. In Egypt, when God's people were being rescued from slavery, um, the rescue centered around a Passover lamb whose blood was spread on the doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over his people and they would be spared. And the Apostle Paul tells us explicitly, Jesus is our Passover lamb by whose blood we are spared the wrath of God for our sins. So all of this imagery lies behind that little phrase that the lamb is standing as though it has been slain. And the focus then is on Jesus' cross work, right? On his laying down of his life to be slaughtered on the cross so we could be restored to God as our Father. This is why he's worthy, because he was slain. And so now as the lamb steps forward, takes the scroll, the weeping stops, and worship busts out in heaven even beyond what we saw in chapter 4. Look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it's the same circle of worshipers from chapter 4, right? Same four living creatures, same 24 elders, and these elders now have harps, we're told, and bowls of incense, which are the prayers of, of the saints. It's a beautiful picture that... Our prayers ascend to God like incense, pleasing to him. And they fall down where? Before the lamb, who is Jesus, 
just as they did before the father on the throne in chapter 4. So what does that tell you about this lamb? Look at verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this is good news, right? The lamb is worthy when no one else could. The lamb is worthy. Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream like the prophet Amos longed for it to do because the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Professor Grant Osborne writes, here lies the greatest paradox of Christianity. Victory comes from apparent defeat. Evil is conquered through the terrible sacrificial suffering of the cross. The New Testament's very clear on this. When Satan placed Christ on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error, for he took part in his own defeat, right? So the lamb is worthy because he was slain. That's why he's worthy. The lion became the lamb and gave his life to be slaughtered. So the lyric we've been singing recently rings true to us. The Lord will banish every sin, and what's broken he will mend and make new. Because the lamb is found worthy, because he gave up his life for slaughter, for the sake of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This does not mean that all people in every tribe will be saved. But it does mean that people from among every tribe will be saved. Not that all among every people will be saved, but that some from among every people will be saved. So there are about 16,000 people groups in the world, missiologists tell us. Different languages, different cultures. Just about a little bit more than 3,000 of those are considered unreached or unengaged. They're unreached in that they're less than 2% of their population are evangelical Christians. And they're unengaged in that no church or mission agency is targeting them and in contact with them at this point in time. They are unreached and unengaged. About 200 plus million people are part of those groups. But I, I just learned this. At the end of last year, there was a missions conference and the last, the remaining um, unreached, unengaged people groups The last ones were adopted by a mission agency or a church and committed to see those people engaged with the gospel within two years. So the last of these remaining groups, Lord willing, will hear the gospel of the ransom of Christ on their behalf within the next two years. Um, So it's happening, friends. It's happening in our lifetime. The message of the ransoming work of Jesus is being taken to every tribe, tongue, and people, and language. It's happening. And North Wakers are part of that. They are in Ethiopia, and China, and Papua New Guinea, and India, and Turkey, and Japan, and Indonesia, and Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan, and many more. Bearing the good news that the ransom was paid for you and your people. 
ransomed. That's beautiful language, ransomed. Picture someone enslaved. They're owned. They're literally owned by another. Degrading, suffering, life-robbing, oppressed, even possessed. And then the price is paid by one who loves them. It's a high price. It costs them his life, his life's blood. But then they are free from their old master. They are free from their old master, and now they have a new master. Now, we have to get our minds around this. As Americans, that doesn't sound right. We don't want to be enslaved to any master. We want to be free, right? But in this case, we are free from our old master, and we are bound to a new master. It's the best of all possible worlds. Um, look, look closely at, at what, what he says here. Um, Those purchased by the Son of God with his own blood now belong to him. They are his, but they become royalty and they reign with him. Literally, look at verse 10. You have made them, the ones you purchased, you have made them now to be a kingdom, royalty, and priests to our God, and they shall reign royally upon the earth. To be a slave of God is to be the freest of all men. And this language of ransom and freedom and kingdom and priests, it takes us back to Revelation chapter 1, the first chapter. And we read this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So this ransom, this freeing us, is a freeing us from our sins by his blood. And don't miss that this is an act of love. This purchase, this ransom, is because he loves you. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This language is life-giving fuel for missions because wherever you go, whatever language and culture you penetrate, Christ has died for those people. But it is also the death knell for racism. It must be the death knell for racism in the church. Listen to what Pastor Sam Storms says again. He says, When you permit feelings in your heart of dislike and suspicion and disdain toward a person of a different skin color, you are blaspheming the majesty of the Creator God. You are denouncing the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You are despising the shed blood of the cross. You are slandering the power of God in shaping men and women of all ethnicities in his image. You are denigrating and denying the purpose of God in redeeming men and women of all ethnicities and colors and making them a kingdom of priests. Racism is blasphemy, he writes. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God or embrace his redemptive purposes in Christ while treating his supreme creation with contempt, whatever color or culture or age that creation might be. And then Al Mohler adds this bottom line indictment. He says simply, you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and hold to any notion of racial superiority. It is impossible because the lamb was slain to purchase people from every tribe and language and people and nation, every last one, no exceptions. And now, and now, almost unbelievably, the circle of worship around the lamb and the one who sits on the throne gets even bigger. Look, look at verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So now we see that this throne, in chapter 7, it's going to tell us that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, right there with God, where those elders are falling down before the Lamb as well as God on his throne. What does that tell you about who this Lamb must be? Okay. Anyway, the throne is encircled by a rainbow, by 24 elders, by four living creatures, and now we see another circle, many angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands Scholars tell us that a myriad was the biggest number that they had in Greco-Roman culture. The idea is that there are innumerable angels around the throne of God and the Lamb, and they declare the Lamb worthy. Worthy. And again, it's the Lamb who was slain who is worthy of sevenfold praise, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And this sounds very similar to the worship given to God on the throne back in chapter 4. And we'll hear it again in chapter 7. What does this tell us about this lamb? It tells us he's worthy of the same worship of God. He must be God. That's the only explanation for what we see. This lamb, this Christ, this Jesus, he's God. And he's worthy of our worship. Don't ever be ashamed of identifying yourself as a Jesus worshiper, okay? He's worthy of it. It's the most reasonable thing in the world that you would be a Jesus worshiper. And incredibly, the ripples of worship around the throne are going to go out even further. Look at verse 13 and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. They're from the south. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Okay. So beyond that emerald-colored rainbow, and those 24 elders and their thrones, beyond those four living creatures, beyond the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels, we now see another circle of worship. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them, every creature, all of creation, give glory to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb without differentiation in any way. They are both worshiped as God. Worship the Lamb. He's worthy of your worship. And now the teaching of Philippians 2 is in play. You remember these verses from Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so now the circles of worship, they're complete. Every created being is found there. Bowing down, declaring the worth of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne above all others. All of creation is there. The elders, those four living creatures, the angels, the birds, the majestic birds of the air, the fish deep under the seas, the great beasts of the Serengeti, and the little ones from the prairies of our own country. Right? <laughs> Worshiping. Worshiping around the throne. It's what they were made for. It's the scene of all scenes, people. It's the wonder of all wonders. It's the very throne room of God. It's been going on since the foundation of the world and will continue happening ceaselessly for all eternity. It's happening now. And we are invited in this morning to gather around the throne of God and join this throng and give him praise. So let me invite you to stand with me now. Stand, if you would. I'd like to invite you to hear the word of the Lord, and then let's respond with worship of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. The lion is a lamb. Chapter 5. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It was written on both sides, fastened with seven seals. I also saw a powerful angel calling out in a voice like thunder. Is there anyone who can open the scroll, who can break its seals? There was no one. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one from the underworld, able to break open the scroll and read it. I wept and wept and wept that no one was found able to open the scroll, able to read it. One of the elders said, Don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe Judah, the root of David's tree, has conquered. He can open the scroll, can rip through the seven seals. So I looked, and there, surrounded by throne, animals, and elders, was a lamb, slaughtered, but standing tall. Seven horns he had, and seven eyes, the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came to the one seated on the throne and took the scroll from his right hand. The moment he took the scroll, the four animals and twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped the lamb. Each had a harp and each had a bowl, a gold bowl filled with incense, the prayers of God's holy people. And they sang a new song. Worthy, take the scroll, open its seals. Slain, paying in blood, you bought men and women, bought them back from all over the earth bought them back for God. Then you made them a kingdom, priests for our God, priest kings to rule over the earth. I looked again. I heard a company of angels around the throne, the animals and the elders, 10,000 times 10,000 their number, thousand after thousand after thousand in full song. The slain lamb is worthy. Take the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the strength. Take the honor, the glory, the blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth, in underworld and sea, join in, all voices in all places, singing to the one on the throne, to the Lamb, the blessing, the honor, the glory, the strength, for age after age after age. 
The four animals called out, Oh yes! The elders fell to their knees and worshipped.